Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. The Hamilton Community Foundation has a plan to combat the affordable housing crisis. I'm also talking about the operation of Hamilton's LRT, robotic-assisted surgeries at St. Joe's, getting ready for the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, a local hockey star is staying close to home, and are you losing sleep at night? The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. The Hamilton Community Foundation has released its 2023 Vital Signs Affordable Housing Report, which calls for collective action to combat this housing crisis. And here to talk about it is Terry Cook. Terry is the president and CEO of the Hamilton Community Foundation. Terry, good morning. Welcome to the show. Hey, Rick. Good to be with you. Let's get to your key findings. What have you uncovered? Well, uh, I suppose the most disturbing thing is that uh, for every new unit of affordable housing that we are creating in this community, and there's lots of efforts focused on that for obvious reasons, we're losing 23. So there is a huge hole in the bottom of the bucket problem that we need to be paying attention to, as well as the need to create new supply that that, uh, targets low to moderate income citizens. Anybody that spent any time recently walking or biking or driving around the lower city knows that uh, we have uh, encampments, people living in tents in virtually every significant park, and that would have been unimaginable even five years ago. So So we're at a point where we need all hands on deck. We need all levels of government, the private sector, and citizens committed to fixing this problem because we know what the solutions are. So for every one or new unit, we're losing 23, which is quite the disparity. How has that happened? Is that just because of price point? Yeah, a lot of it's uh, population growth, driving demand, uh, lack of tenant protections that lead to rent evictions and displacements. Um uh, obviously, cheap value of money. We have m- many more speculators and uh, the REITs buying up uh, what historically were mom-and-pop walk-up apartments that uh, tended to cater to uh, a lower-income section of the population. Uh, we have an in-province migration from the GTA to Hamilton. Again, people moving to find cheaper housing, ironically, but driving the prices up here. Uh, and then uh, a very significant influx of international students. Uh, when you add 900,000 international students uh, to the uh, the population of the country in, an, in a single year, that's going to have an effect. So it, it really is a combination of factors. The other thing we've pointed out is this hasn't happened overnight. Uh, we have seen 30 to 40 years of senior levels of government abandon the need to contribute and participate in social housing. And started in the 1990s with the federal government, uh, early 2000s, the provincial Harris government downloaded social housing to, uh, to municipalities and in places like Hamilton that tended to have more of uh, social housing because we were an older community that uh, tended to be a place that people came for services and support. It was particularly crippling. And all of those factors really have been contributing to a slow rolling uh, disaster in the making. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Terry Cook, President and CEO of the Hamilton Community Foundation. They've released their 2023 Vital Signs Affordable Housing Report, which, as you mentioned just a few minutes ago, calls for collective action to combat this issue. Are we are we at the point of no return or can we turn the tide? And if so, what needs to be done? 
Oh, we can turn the tide. I mean, <laughs> there are governments in other G7 countries that uh, have recognized uh, the importance of housing as a human right and made the necessary uh, decisions to make it happen. And it, it starts at all levels of government. So local governments need to do a much better job at uh, speeding approvals and lessening bureaucratic uh, resistance uh, to moving projects forward. Uh, the provincial government have been largely absent from this discussion. Uh, we need to hold them accountable and get them back in the game. And then obviously the feds, who historically played a significant role, have to play along with the private sector. So this is, first of all, you can't wave the white flag on this issue because the, the human cost would be just intolerable. Uh, but we have to recognize that this isn't just a problem in Hamilton. Uh, I was in Vancouver on the downtown east side recently. There's a tent city a mile and a half long. Even smaller communities in Ontario, like Peterborough, have very significant challenges. So it is a problem that is challenging urban, rural, um, large and small, and it, it needs a national and a provincial and a local focus if we're going to make headway here. But it is absolutely a challenge that we can overcome with the, with the resolve and the focus that we need. Looking at the situation here in Hamilton, Terry, what is the first thing we should be doing to start turning that tide? That's a great question. And one of the things we're doing at the Community Foundation, because we are the largest investor lender to the charitable housing sector outside of government is that we have about 200 very high acuity people living in, in tents in this community and the answer there is permanent supportive housing. We have a local coalition that have identified about 400 units that could be shovel ready very quickly and with the support of different levels of government, philanthropy and the private sector we could move on that very quickly and start to make very significant inroads in the problem that we're seeing in local parks and ravines. And I think that's where we've got to focus our efforts, getting those projects shovel-ready and, uh, and, and really staying focused with a sense of urgency. So what's the holdup there? Why aren't we doing that? Well, in, in some cases, because the, the, uh, the charitable sector that provides these services to, to a hard-to-service uh, clientele simply don't have the capital uh, to absorb the half half million to a million dollar cost to do the planning and environmental approvals up front with no certainty that they're going to get uh, project financing once that process is done. And uh, that's one of the areas that the Community Foundation is looking very seriously at continuing to double down with some of our capital. Uh, but obviously we need governments to participate as well. Yeah, it takes two to tango, and in this case, a lot more than two, that is for sure. Terry, will continue to follow this story. Appreciate your efforts on this, and thanks for the time this morning. Good to be with you, Rick. Take care. Terry Cook is the president and CEO of the Hamilton Community Foundation. Their Vital Signs Affordable Housing Report, not only calling for collective action, but uh, finding what we all kind of know already, right? New housing is too expensive. There's not enough of it. The rental market is extremely airtight. Homelessness is on the rise. Something needs to be done. And as Terry mentioned, yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna wave the white flag. We got to get some action done and action immediately. But we need some partners, both private and public, at the table to hammer this out and get a solution. We'll continue to follow this story as it develops. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Should Hamilton's LRT? I know it's our favorite acronym. 
But should Hamilton's LRT be operated publicly or privately? And we're asking that question because the debate has erupted yet again at Hamilton City Hall. It's also the focus of our poll question of the day on X at AM 900 CHML. Publicly or privately? Right now, 64% of you say publicly is the way to go. 36% saying privately. You can offer your thoughts on text at 905-645-3221 or via email. Rick at 900 CHML. Dot com. This was discussed earlier this week at a city subcommittee where members of the Keep Transit Public Campaign, which is a coalition of community and labor groups, uh, are saying, hey, city councilors, we have to keep this operation in public hands. It should be run by the HSR. Here's one of the speakers at uh, City Hall earlier this week. Obviously, a major one is that the motivation for the private side of that relationship is profit and not necessarily the people of the city. Now, so here, here's what we do know. The province is building, we think, the LRT at some point and is going to own it. And it will ultimately have the final say as to who operate it. But the city is expected to make a recommendation to Metrolinx before the end of this year. The question is, how is it going to be run? Now, the Amalgamated Transit Union operates the HSR. So why shouldn't the LRT be run by the Amalgamated Transit Union. Well, let's ask the president of ATU Local 107. That is Eric Tuck, who joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Eric, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm fantastic. Number one, I, I have to thank you profusely for waking up earlier than normal as you're joining us from Calgary, so I really appreciate you uh, doing so. But why should the LRT be operated publicly? So, so Rick, as you know, HSR uh, and ATU have ran the transit system in this city, reliable, safe, efficient transit for over 150 years. Um, you know, we have a gold star brand here that has proven track record uh, time and time again of delivering public transit to the city. Uh, when you look at contracting out in the P3 model that has been used by Metrolinx, and I'll point to Ottawa as the perfect example not to do it uh, the way they're doing it, by contracting the operations and maintenance out. Uh, that system has been down more than it's been up, and uh, they've missed, uh, in the first three months of this year, 23 days were missed of service. Is that what we want for the city of Hamilton? Uh, and you got to remember, we're on the hook for payments. Um, when it's contracted out to a P3 model, uh, the city still has to pay whether that system is up and running or not. They still have to maintain those payments every month. Uh, and it's the local taxpayers that end up paying uh, and losing the service that they, they so rightfully deserve and have been uh, contracted to provide. Let's stay with the Ottawa example because it's the most glaring one that we can use in this case. How would a publicly run system have avoided what they are enduring? Well, it, it's, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to avoid because it's still the same builder. Uh, but the difference is you got the accountability. You got the answers immediately. You can hold those uh, contractors, subcontractors. You don't have five different hands into the pie. Uh, when, we, when they contract out through a P3 model, you usually have, uh, in Ottawa's case, there's four or five contractors who then have, each one of them have several, you know, three, four, five subcontractors. Uh, there's no accountability. There's no responsibility at the end of the day when things do go wrong. Uh, at least now, you know, if you do it in-house and the city of Hamilton and the taxpayers who are paying the bill, and I remind you, 
we pay the bill for the operations and maintenance. Yes, Metrolinks and the federal government and provincial government are providing the money to build the system. But at the end of the day, it's the local taxpayers that have to pay for the operations and maintenance. So if we're on the hook for paying it, why would we go to a private corporation, which is going to put profits uh, over people, uh, and, and give them our money when they have nowhere near the history and the record that HSR has of providing proper service uh, and accountability day in and day out. Talking about the operation of the LRT with Eric Tuck, president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 107, the group that operates the HSR. Is there any is there anything in your current contract that stipulates, uh, listen, the, the, the people who do uh, operate the HSR will also operate the LRT? Is that written somewhere? So, so what we have is we have very clear historical language that we've built up in our 125-year history as the union representing transit workers here in the city of Hamilton. We have very clear language that says the conversion of any fixed route service, and you can't get more fixed route than putting rails in the ground, any fixed route service belongs to the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 107 members. Now, when it comes to the LRT, there's also a situation in terms of HSR and contract negotiations are ongoing. Where do they stand right now? So, as you know, uh, we've, we've been con- um, in negotiations for, for well, since February we had our first meeting. Uh, we've had about 24 or 25 meetings now. We've still got four more days. Uh, there has been a conciliator brought in. The employer uh, requested a no-board report. Um, so, in fact, uh, either side could take action after October 25th. Uh, we have not set any uh, action at this point. We have four more days of negotiations, at which point we will report back to our members, and uh, we'll see where we go from there. But uh, i got to tell you, this has been one of the sticking points, uh, ensuring that uh, we protect our historical rights to be the union to deliver uh, the service through the LRT. It's a conversion of the B-line. Uh, that was made clear from day one that that B-line service was being converted to an LRT, and we, we, we staked our, our ground very early on uh, as the transit union that's provided safe, efficient, reliable transit for 150 years. Uh, we've developed a gold star brand, and we should get first bid at that work. Are you optimistic or pessimistic a deal will be reached before any action is taken from either side? So, you know what, uh, this is my fifth round of uh, bargaining as the lead negotiator for the, for the uh, Amalgamated Transit Union, and uh, it, i got to tell you, I'm a little skeptical this time. Uh, the city has not been stepping up, and with everything that my members have been through, through COVID, um, you know, they're going to have to come to the table with a better package than they have. Eric, appreciate the time. And again, waking up super early out in Alberta. Thanks for joining us. Not a problem. Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure as always. Eric Tuck, president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 107, reflecting on who's going to operate the LRT and, well, some uh, some intense contract negotiations in terms of the future of the HSR. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. As I mentioned earlier, there are three types of robotic-assisted surgeries at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton. One 
being used to treat prostate cancer that now qualify for OHIP funding. So what does that mean? What kind of impact will we see because of that? Dr. Bobby Shagan is one of Canada's top urologic uh, surgeons and chief of surgery at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton and joins us now. Dr. Shagan, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. Good morning. I'm excellent. Thank you. How are you? I'm I'm fantastic. And, and I think a lot of people are happy to hear this news that these three robotic assisted surgeries now qualify for OHIP. What is the impact? Well, I think, um, you know, this has been a long time coming and um, we've known now for many years that uh, robotic um, approaches to certain types of procedures yield better outcomes for the patient and for the community in general. Um, so <clears throat> the challenge has always been funding and the cost that the hospitals will have to bear. And much of this has always come through philanthropy. We've been very, very, um, um, we've been basically gifted for, uh, by generous uh, individuals in our community. So moving forward, uh, the day-to-day costs of performing robotic procedures in certain areas for kidney cancer, for prostate cancer, and for uterine cancer, that cost will be now covered by the provincial government. Now, this will not cover acquisition of robotic equipment. So I think philanthropy will still have a place. In fact, it'll be needed more than ever as more and more hospitals want to come online and purchase the robotic equipment. But the day-to-day cost of it now, for the most part, should be covered uh, by the provincial government. So I think that's a fantastic option now for patients with certain types of cancers. Was there a sense within the medical community that that because it wasn't previously funded through OHEP that people were reluctant to go down this route and maybe putting off these type of procedures? I think hospitals certainly were. I think patients have always had an interest in uh, pursuing, uh, you know, less and less invasive approaches, more accurate and technologically advanced approaches. But of course, there's a huge cost, a financial burden on the system, on individual hospitals. So the the, the challenge has been to get hospitals to actually purchase the equipment. As I mentioned, St. Joe's, you know, we've uh, been um, tremendously lucky to have worked with such a great foundation and phenomenal donors. And we've been able to acquire these systems over the last 12 years as other hospitals, some hospitals have. But the funding, I think, is going to increase the interests uh, of many other community hospitals that today don't have these systems in place to acquire them so that they can start to offer this to their patients. Uh, But we've been doing this successfully now for about 12 years, but certainly having the funding announcement this year from the Ministry of Health is going to relieve some pressure, uh, but the pressure is still on for us to expand our program, have more systems in place, and be able to offer this to more and more patients and reduce wait times. In our final minute together, is this, are you going to see a uh, a lot more robotic-assisted surgeries at St. Joe's and, and throughout the community? And, and does this funding apply immediately? Uh, yes. So the answer is yes to both. The funding is immediate. And in fact, it's supposed to be retroactive for about a year. Um, And in terms of are we going to see more and more robotic uh, procedures being offered to patients, that's certainly the hope. There will always be a capacity issue. And this is why, as a hospital, now we're already looking into uh, expanding our program, uh, looking for generous donors and philanthropists that can help us expand by having a second and perhaps even a third robot 
um, as the existing one is already being maxed out, used every single day. Um, so, but all in all, yes, absolutely. The aim is to offer this to more and more patients through expansion of our programs. And it's great news, and it's going to be great to see better health outcomes because of this. Dr. Shagan, thank you very much for your time this morning. Yeah, my pleasure. Have a great day. You too. That is Dr. Bobby Shagan, one of Canada's top urologic surgeons and chief of surgery at St. Joe's Healthcare Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, the Aboriginal People's Television Network, APTN, and the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation are teaming up to once again produce a 90-minute commemorative gathering at Parliament Hill in Ottawa for the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation on Saturday. Here to talk about it is the Executive Director of Content and Strategy at APTN, Mike Omelis. Mike, good morning. How are you? Rick, it's nice to talk to you. Good morning. What is planned for Saturday? Well, as you mentioned, the big national commemorative event to uh, honour and mark the third annual National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. It's on Parliament Hill this year. This is the second time we've teamed up with the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation to do this. Last year, it was uh, at a park called Le Breton Flats beside the Canadian War Museum, a couple of kilometres away. This year, we're uh, in front of the uh, centre block on Parliament Hill. And it's it's uh, 90 minutes featuring remarks from residential school survivors, the Governor General, and performances from various Indigenous artists, all to drive home the, the key points about the day, what it means, what it's all about, and hopefully to get viewers and listeners reflecting on its significance. That's what this day is all about, is, is listening and learning and, and taking action and continuing the conversation. What kind of message do you hope to send on Saturday? Well, it's the survivors who are speaking and the Governor General who will be sending the message. But I think, uh, you know, in all instances, what we're hoping to do is just... Um, you know, deepen the understanding of what went on over the past century and a half uh, regarding Canada and its treatment of Indigenous peoples. They tried to assimilate them, uh, forced uh, the children away from their families into residential schools, and uh, caused just really horrific conditions that generations are are living, following generations are still living with to this day. So we're just trying to deepen understanding and, and Learn from our mistakes. You know, you can't go forward without uh, understanding what you did wrong in the past. And and hopefully this will be another step on the on the path to reconciliation. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Mike Omelis, Executive Director, Content and Strategy at APTN, the Aboriginal People's Television Network. We know Saturday is also uh, known as Orange Shirt Day. Uh, I'm, I'm certain we're going to see a lot of orange shirts all over the place, especially in Ottawa as well. What What does this day mean to you? Well, Orange Shirt Day was the, the, the precursor of, of the National Day for Tooth and Reconciliation. And it was started by a woman in uh, Williams Lake, British Columbia, Phyllis Webstad. And, and she wanted to do something to remind people of, the again, the treatment of Indigenous peoples. She was six years old and going to school, looking forward to it on her first day. Her grandmother brought her into town. She was from the Dog Creek uh, First Nation uh, I think she went shopping in Williams Lake, picked out a brand new orange T-shirt, got to her residential school. She was stripped off. The, uh, the, the shirt was stripped off of her. She wasn't allowed to wear it. And it's basically symbolic of the entire way, the, the entire approach 
to treating indigenous uh, peoples uh, in Canada. And, and so I think um, it's, it's a very symbolic um, part of the event that, that uh, is not just about orange shirts. It's, it's, it's about remembering the children who went to residential schools, many of whom didn't come home because they were malnourished. The rampant tuberculosis, you know, they died on site at the residential school. And, and you know, we've been hearing about undiscovered uh, graves in the in the not too uh, uh, distant past. It's a very disturbing and, and very sad situation in which we're all, you know, learning and, and trying to do better and, and obviously not repeat history. That is for sure. Uh, in our final minute together, what other programs and initiatives should we be aware of that APTN is, is doing this weekend on Saturday? Well, if I can give a plug for APTN, we have 48 hours of uh, themed coverage throughout the weekend. Um, there's been a lot of documentary series done, remarkable documentaries that really explain what happened. I, I was actually at an event in um, in Ottawa last night. It was the official launch to a series from uh, Indigenous uh, filmmaker Marie Clements called Bones of Crows. And when you actually see, and it was, this is, you know, it's, it's not fiction facts when you see what happened um it's it's uh just a reminder of of uh, how how nasty we can be as humans and and uh so i i think um you know there are many ways to mark the day just reflecting on it with a good intention is is what it's all about and uh if you can watch aptn or uh, read a book or do some research online that's all good things uh too absolutely mike appreciate the time thanks for joining us and good luck on saturday Thank you very much, Rick. Thank you for the time. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Fantastic news back on September 18th because the Professional Women's Hockey League held its inaugural draft. Very exciting for the 90 players chosen uh, who will join free agents on teams in Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, New York, Boston, and Minnesota. And one of the most decorated Canadian players was taken number two overall by Toronto. That's our next guest here on GMH. Jocelyn LaRock, LaRock, assistant captain of Canada's Olympic gold medal winning hockey team, joins us on GMH. Jocelyn, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm good. Number two overall. What was that like? Honestly, the draft, it was, it was an amazing day. Um, it was, you know, run so well. Uh, they had young kids there, you know, lots of people in attendance. Um, the energy was electric and, you know, I'm just very happy to be chosen by Toronto and uh, look, looking forward to the upcoming season. Yeah. Residing in Brantford, that's pretty close to home. Um, did, did you have a sense that you were going to go number two? Um, no, I mean, you know, any anything can happen in a draft. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, I was hoping to, but, um, yeah, I mean, you, you never know. You're going to be reunited uh, in Toronto with some of your Olympic teammates, Renata Fast, uh, Blair Turnbull, Hamilton, Sarah Nurse on that team. How cool is that? Oh, it's, it's uh, great. I mean, I've been teammates with those three for many years now. And uh, looking at the roster, uh, we're going to have a strong team. Um, yeah, so definitely looking forward to it. Now you're 35, but you're still considered one of the best defenders in the game. How much more gas do you have in the tank? <laughs> um, you know, it's uh, when you're playing at this level, it's important to take care of your body. I mean, I'd say even if you're 20 or 35 like me. So um, it's something that, you know, you have to take a lot of priority in. And, uh, you know, I 
I kind of see age as a number and I feel like every year I'm getting better and better. So I don't really, I, I guess I don't know how to answer that. Um, I'm still <laughs> feeling good and body's feeling good and uh, I'm still having a lot of fun and I, I still love it. So. Yeah, I guess the, the answer is there's still a lot of gas left in the tank. So Zamprin will be quiet <laughs> yeah. already. Uh, Jocelyn LaRock <laughs> is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Jocelyn is uh, the assistant captain of Canada's Olympic gold medal winning hockey team. Has won a number of other awards and trophies. The trophy case is uh, is really full. And we're just talking about the talent on this Toronto team. And there is already a lot of talk of you potentially wearing the captain C. Is that something that you want? Um. Oh, I mean, I... I... To be honest, I haven't put a lot of thought into it. Um, I mean, I would be more than happy to, but I mean, there's there's so many amazing leaders on that team. So we'll just see where, you know, that falls. And and regardless of, you know, whether I wear C, whether I wear an A or I have no letter, um, I will lead the way, you know, I will still lead and um you know try to be the best teammate i can be and and play hard for for the team so we'll see we'll see where that falls we've had uh, professional women's hockey uh, in the past uh, things haven't uh, you know turned out uh, as positively as we all have hoped especially as hockey fans how how are we going to make the pwhl a success yeah, you know, in, in past leagues, uh, like the Canadian Women's Hockey League, even way back before I went to college, there was the Western Women's Hockey League that I played in. Um, you know what? There was amazing talent in those leagues and top end players, Olympic players. But the issue was like the infrastructure. And now with the PH, sorry, PWHL, the leadership that we have with Jaina Hefford, you know, some really big names like Billie Jean King involved, that's the difference. And, you know, with with our collective bargaining agreement done, you know, it's it's an incredibly well-written document. It's protecting us. It's protecting, you know, the owners. And it's that's the difference. So, you know, this is going to be real professional hockey. Um, you know, coaches are going to be getting paid, athletic therapists are going to be getting paid, players are going to be getting paid, and the venues are going to be, you know, world class. So, yeah, just it's 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 the infrastructure behind it. Now, we know you're a Brantford resident now, but you're originally from St. Anne, Manitoba. And I didn't know this, but you were the first Métis to be drafted in the PWHL. And with National Day for Truth and Reconciliation on Saturday, the draft must have been, mm-hmm. I would imagine, an extra proud moment for you. Uh, of course. And um, I'm I'm extremely proud of my Indigenous heritage. And, you know, to to be a role model, you know, for, for any young kids, I think it's so important for, you know, now young girls to be able to see professional hockey. Well, I mean, see come January and to be able to have that dream. And, you know, when I was a kid, my dream was to play in the NHL. And I had a lot of people tell me that that's not a dream that I could have. And, you know, when I was really young, I remember thinking, well, why can't I have that dream? And then I realized it was because I was a girl. Um, So now it's really nice that, you know, now young boys and young girls can have that dream. And for people to not tell young girls that that's not a dream that they can have. So it's, you know, visibility is important. Representation is important. And, you know, every young kid should be able to see someone like them doing what they would like to do one day. So, I mean, for for all of us at the draft, for all of us that are going to be playing next year on, on the six teams, um, I think it's going to be really huge for young girls to be able to see that. 
Well, you're doing a phenomenal job of carrying the torch on and off the ice and being a, a role model for uh, boys and girls alike to, to look up to an outstanding hockey player that's going to represent not only St. Anne, Manitoba, Brantford, Ontario, and Toronto with the new team coming up in the new year. Jocelyn, appreciate the time. Good luck. Thank you so much. Jocelyn Varak Larak, Brantford resident, assistant captain of Canada's Olympic champion hockey team. In fact, she has two Olympic gold medals, three golds at the Worlds, six silver medals at those events. She's got a couple of NCAA titles, three WWHL championships, a CWHL title, played professionally in Brampton and Markham and in Calgary, and is now going to be on the Toronto team for the PWHL. We don't have team names at this point, but Toronto... Ottawa, Montreal, Boston, New York, and Minnesota will uh, duke it out for women's hockey supremacy starting uh, in the new year. It's going to be a lot of fun, a lot of excitement to see the women out. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. How many hours of sleep did you get last night? Well, I, I say that because... As we know, there's a lot of excitement around the Toronto Blue Jays as they close in on clinching a playoff spot in Major League Baseball. And starting pitcher Yusei Kikuchi has been an important part of the Blue Jays' playoff push. And all season long, he's tied for 10th in the majors with 9.8 strikeouts per nine innings. That's pretty good. Now, he recently made waves when he revealed that he likes to get a good or very good night's sleep before he's scheduled to pitch. And this came about because... The last time he pitched against the the Yankees last week, he was forced to exit the game early. He was suffering from some cramping. And he blamed it on his lack of sleep because he said he only got he only got 11 hours of sleep the night before instead of his usual 13 or 14 hours. So he sleeps from about 11 p.m. to 1 p.m. So let's bring in an expert on sleep. Bridget Jensen is the founder and a sleep consultant with Better Bedtime and joins us on GMH. Bridget, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm not coming off 13 or 14 hour sleep, though. <laughs> maybe that's a good thing, though. <laughs> <laughs> how much sleep, maybe we'll start with the baseline, how much sleep should the average adult get? So everyone's different, but somewhere in the realm of seven to eight hours, usually the higher end would be nine for the average adult. Okay. And does that number change if you're a teenager or a young child? Are you getting a little bit more? It certainly does. So when we first are born, our sleep needs are quite high and we sleep, you know, let's say 18 hours within 24 hours. And then as we grow, that need changes, um, even just depending on where we are in our life. As we get older, our sleep needs might change again. But the average adult over 18, yeah, would be somewhere between that uh, seven and eight. Okay. I know everyone's different, but is 13 to 14 hours of sleep in one night okay? Well... (laughs) It could be. So this would depend if you're catching up on something like maybe you had been up training or studying or had a tight deadline and you're trying to catch up on some sleep. Um, But as a typical night of sleep, that is definitely on the high end. (laughs) Absolutely. Bridget Jensen is our guest. She is the founder and a sleep consultant with Better Bedtime. You can check them out online, betterbedtime.ca. Now, you say Kikuchi admits that he also aims to get a 10-minute power nap every day regardless of how much you know how many hours he's getting of sleep uh, before he pitches is a 10 minute power nap a good idea 10 minutes seems to be a small amount of time 
It can be. This is an interesting topic in the world that I work in because it really depends on the time of day you might have that. Because a 10-minute power nap at 7 p.m. when you're laying on the couch is probably going to interfere with your night's sleep. You're not going to get that good, solid sleep that we're looking for. But certainly earlier in the day, our rule of thumb is before 3 p.m. If you have the opportunity for it, it can be a great way to sort of recharge up. That name's perfect, power nap, um, to give you more stamina to go on through your day. And if you can, should you schedule these power naps or should you just let it happen? I I love the idea if you had the ability to have an open space for just that. But it could be this other thing that he goes on to talk about with one of his keys to having great sleep and the opportunity to have lengthy sleep is time to meditate or time to sort of uh, detach from what's going on so that you can just mentally have some calmness, whether it be a nap time or a meditation time, that window, that pocket can really add some relief for those night wakings or the issues that we can see in the night. Yeah. So you alluded to it. Kikuchi says, you know, his nighttime routine is a 10 minute meditation session. He's off to bed. Apparently he's got a great pillow. He closes his eyes. He's in la la land in about five minutes. Uh, For people who have trouble getting to sleep, how important is having a nighttime routine? Absolutely essential. Having a good uh, nighttime routine, I'd go further than that to say ideal sleep space. It doesn't have to be fancy, but having a a cool, like somewhere in the 20 degree or or even less realm, um, dark space, maybe some white noise or a fan on, just having a space that you can look forward to and that is conducive to good sleep. We don't want lots of lights, blinking things and noises, loads of scents. We want a nice, calm space and a routine. Absolutely critical for good sleep. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Bridget Jensen, founder and sleep consultant with Better Bedtime online at betterbedtime.ca. And we're talking about the uh, wondrous sleep pattern of Toronto Blue Jays pitcher Yusei Kikuchi. And we're all kind of jealous that he gets 13 or 14 hours uh, before a starts. Now, how about this? How about you have no trouble getting to sleep, but you find yourself waking up in the middle of the night and then can't get back to sleep. What's up with that? Yeah, that would be, I'd say, our average bear that we see is they might not have issues actually falling asleep, but they can't stay asleep. So we always challenge people to think about this. Maybe the reason you're not able to stay asleep is because of how you're falling asleep. So we like to take a deeper look at that hour or so before bedtime in the evening. Are we having um, some alcohol before bed? Are we having loads of sugar or something fried and heavy that's going to bother our sleep? Or are we giving ourselves time to sort of decompress after that day, whether it be that meditation time or maybe some journaling, the five minute journal, let's say, or something along those lines? Because what can happen is if your sleep pressure is high enough, right? Imagine you're wiped, you go to bed, you fall asleep in a few minutes, terrific. But then you wake up between 2 and 4 a.m. You look at the clock. Next thing you know, you have 20 things on your mind. Um, The nice thing about being humans and every day is a fresh opportunity is we can make some changes the next day to try to alleviate that stress in the night. And often that has to do with your habits uh, before you even go to bed. Are you giving yourself any pockets of time to unload, you know, mentally or what have you so that you can have a more rested mind in the night? Because at the end of the day, we all wake in the night. We all stir in the night. That's not going to change. That's just human behavior. So what can we do to help sort of prevent um, staying awake for lengthy periods or to minimize these night wakings? And, And one, one tiny thing, would be to just give yourself permission to know it's okay and it's not up to you right we're going to wake up that's just what our body's doing but what can we do next is always the where we get curious last one for you and we got about uh, a minute to to discuss this blue jays manager john schneider said the team takes sleep hygiene his his terminology very seriously this is clearly happening in pro sports what about the regular business world should businesses promote sleep hygiene 
Absolutely. A well-rested employee will make less mistakes. They'll show up, maybe have better emotional intelligence on handling scenarios, whether it's within the office or with clients, let's say. Um, but practicing that good sleep hygiene, which are your habits and practices that are conducive to good sleep. Think of it like brushing your teeth and having a shower, similar light. Um, that absolutely can make a big difference in the professional world. If you're having trouble getting to sleep, check out the website, betterbedtime.ca and speak with Bridget and her team. Bridget, appreciate the time today. Thanks for enlightening us about sleep. Thank you. Sleep well. Yeah, what a great conversation. We'll have to have Bridget back on the show when we turn the clocks back this coming November, November 5th being the exact day. Got a text from Sandra at 905-645-3221 listening to this interview. Sandra says, only a man could sleep that much. Sandra? I will say during the week, there's nowhere near the 14 hours that I'm getting. I would have to multiply like three days to get to 14 hours of sleep. That is a long time to sleep. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.